This is Talking Cities, where we meet the people making cities brilliant. Today on Talking Cities, we're joined by Melinda Salento, who is the Chief Executive of the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. Welcome, Melinda. Thank you, James. Lovely to be here. It's super to have you. CEDAR is a national not-for-profit economic research organisation, which was established in 1960 to harness the ideas and influence of leading thinkers from business, government, community and academia. So Melinda joined CEDA in uh, October 2017, which is last year, as its new Chief Executive Officer. Congratulations. Thank you, James. Now, previously, she was the Deputy CEO and Chief Economist with the Business Council of Australia and has also held roles with the Federal Department of Treasury and the International Monetary Fund. Melinda is also a non-executive director of Woodside Petroleum and Australian Unity and co-chair of Reconciliation Australia. She is also a member of National Australia Bank's Advisory Council on Corporate Responsibility as well as a member of the Parliamentary Budget Office Panel of Expert Advisors. So what do they say? Now, if you want something done, ask a busy person. (laughs) This is true, isn't it? I think so. So we're very grateful to have you here, Melinda, and uh, we're grateful that you've come some time out of your extremely busy schedule to join us on Talking Cities. Now, we always start our conversation off with the same question to every one of our guests. Now, what is your favourite city around the world and why? Yeah, I think I'm going to be a little bit boring here, James. My favourite city is New York, New York City. It's the city I've visited the most and I love it. I'd go back the drop of a hat. Okay. Why do I like New York? I mean, it's an iconic city Mm. uh, for starters. There's so much that you can do in New York and it doesn't matter whether you're there on your own for work or with a family. Fantastic museums, fantastic social infrastructure. You know, I think people focus a lot on the transport infrastructure and roads and all the rest of it. Love the subway. But, Mm. you know, Central Park, Prospect Park, all these places, the High Line, you know, I just think it's a vibrant, dynamic city and uh, I love being there. Yeah, so do I. Is it mainly work that's taking you or uh, personal as well? Look, a bit of both. I lived in the US for a while and so I got to go up to New York on a regular basis and I've been there for work a couple of times but actually spent two weeks there with the family a couple of years ago over Christmas. Wow. Uh, just stayed in, in Brooklyn yeah. and just loved it. You know, it did everything from catching the rockets to buying Christmas trees from one of the street side sellers and, you know, ice skating in Prospect Park and, and it's just a great city. Yeah, Brooklyn's a, a pretty cool area now in, uh, in New York filled with hipsters uh, and rapidly uh, regenerating and gentrifying as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which places extra strain on that city uh, as well. I want to start our conversation uh, around population growth and it's highly topical in Australian cities at the moment. You know, for our international listeners, it was on our Four Corners program, which is our national broadcaster. Um, basically did an expose raising awareness around population growth in Australian cities and what impact it's having on our cities, plus also raising awareness of the rate of population growth. So I guess the question I have for you is, with this population growth, do you agree that we've had 26 years of positive economic growth in this country, which is a, a bit of a record in OECD countries, I believe? Is there a correlation between that, the high levels of population growth and our economic success? Yeah, James, there is. And you're right in highlighting how important it's been and how topical it is at the moment. Mm. Australia has had, uh, you know, amongst the fastest population growth in the world uh, and certainly amongst developed economies uh, over the past decade and and more really. And population growth definitely underpins economic growth. It Mm. is a driver of economic growth. 
Um, it has contributed to Australia's strong economic growth without a doubt. And I was actually looking at some of the numbers and, you know, even being aware of how strong population growth has been, I was surprised by the numbers. So from 2006 to 2016, mm. Australia's population grew by almost 20%. Yeah. That's a big number. It's incredible. And if you look at where it's been distributed, mm. in absolute numbers, the largest growth has occurred here in Victoria. Mm. So over one million people added mm. to the Victorian population in that time period. And that growth's continued in, in the last couple of years as well. And of that over one million people, virtually all of that growth has occurred in, in the greater city of Melbourne. Mm. So that's, you know, those are really, really big numbers. Mm. Now, they do contribute to growth. They obviously bring in skilled labour. Population growth underpins dynamism. Mm. It, it does create a larger market for business yeah. uh, and a larger labour market and labour force. But equally, it puts pressure on things as well. Mm. So uh, so it's, it's a very important issue and it's not surprising it's so topical at the moment. I did a bit of research before our conversation and I see that we're growing at 1.7% per annum and um, some global economies, if we want to compare with the US, that are growing at 0.7% per annum and France, I think, was growing at 0.7%. UK was at 0.8% around about that. So, so we're almost growing at double do you feel that if we were to pair it back to 0.7% to moderate some of the growth, um, we'd still be economically in, in good stead? Look, I think the idea that population growth is somehow the solution for economic growth is, is a pretty narrow one. You know, Treasury in its own, Federal Treasury in its own framework for growth identifies uh, what it calls the three P's, mm. population, productivity and participation. I think what we've seen in the last decade in particular is that there's been a lot of contribution from population. Uh, depending on where we are in the economic cycle, you get contribution from participation rates, which is people actually participating and looking for work. And then there's been less contribution from productivity. And if you look at the latest national accounts, which record our economic performance, and you do a chart of GDP per capita, which is really living standards, mm. it's the amount of economic activity per person, yeah. that's really slowed. So GDP growth has been strong, but GDP per capita hasn't been. Mm. And that's because productivity growth has been quite weak. My own personal view, and this has actually been backed up by some recent research out of the International Monetary Fund, mm. is that in fact that deterioration in productivity performance is underpinning a lot of the angst that we're seeing about economic growth mm. in terms of wages growth not being there yeah. and costs of living being higher. Yeah. Because if you don't have productivity, then what happens is uh, costs go up and you get competition, you get, you know, for resource, you get congestion, those kinds of things. So we need to find ways to do more with what we have um, and we need to find ways to be more efficient and to actually improve both productivity and participation. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, I would have thought that, you know, with technology, we've been more productive, the introduction of technology. So what are some of the things cities um, can do around the world and countries can do around the world to improve productivity? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And just to go back to your observations around Sydney and congestion and the like, I mean, I think that's the same experience here in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been really interesting for me just anecdotally, you know, hearing friends and people I know talking about it. So that population growth without the proper infrastructure planning, mm. without the investment in the types of things that make cities more livable, has actually been felt by people in terms of their own living standards and their own prosperity, if you like. Yeah. 
So, you know, I think one of the things that we really need to do is start thinking about a broader productivity agenda. Mm. And that productivity agenda really needs to relate to cities. It really needs to look at how we live and work in our cities, how we organise activity Mm. and how we get people around the cities. Because the projections for the future are that the sort of population growth that we've seen, Mm. even if it's not at the same rate, most of the population growth is going to happen in capital cities. So the projections out to 2050 show you that around 80% of population growth in Australia will happen in cities. We know that the bulk of economic activity occurs in our major cities. That's likely to continue. And we've seen in terms of job growth and activity over recent years that if anything, that's becoming more concentrated in our major cities in and around CBDs. So, you know, I think the agenda has to be one around public transport, obviously, Mm. transport infrastructure, broader infrastructure, housing, housing affordability. And for people who can't or don't want to live in the cities, you know, how we get them from the places they do live into the city in a, you know, reliable and time effective way. Yeah. Do you, do you have a view on regions? So we're talking about cities now, but um, I, I think about, you know, there's regions like Geelong and, and Sydney, there's Newcastle, and that could potentially take some of this growth and keep sit our cities livable as well. Yeah, look, I think it's it's clearly been a focus and there are ways in which you can attract activity and investment out into those locations. Mm. Uh, but the reality is that the, you know, most of the activity does seem to be finding itself into our major cities. And, you know, one of the interesting things with technology and information and communication technology is that I think people felt that this would enable a wider distribution of activity. It would actually enable people living in regions and connecting into work yeah. elsewhere, which it does. But innovation still happens in conglomerations, in hubs and networks. And it happens face to face. And that's what we're seeing that these, these innovation hubs and ecosystems, they're springing up around each other mm. because people want to have connections to and access to other people and they want, they want to live in places that are livable. So, you know, if, if you look at Melbourne, you want to attract innovation and things like that to Melbourne, yeah. you know, having a, a really livable city with great infrastructure, which is dynamic and exciting and interesting and is just a good place to live is really important. Mm. And I think the same goes for regions. And the challenge there is, you know, really how you drive that uh, with a smaller scale. So you've held senior roles with the International Monetary Fund and uh, we tre- work with Treasury. So if I said to you we should spend $70 billion investing in a high-speed rail connection along the east coast of Australia, (laughs) and you may not get a return on that investment for quite a few years, but it's nation-building, how how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think... Let me take a step back and say that, you know, I think there's been progress made in Australia around how we think about infrastructure Mm. and in trying to put a bit more discipline and rigour around how you think about the net benefits of each project and how you appropriately prioritise the use of taxpayers' money, ultimately. I think sometimes it is difficult to do that analysis when the benefits are way down the track and some of the benefits can't be neatly captured in economic analysis. And I think it's one of the things, you know, I I worked at the Productivity Commission as well, and Mm. it's one of the areas where they're focusing more in terms of the proper analysis of, of social and community benefits, yeah. making sure that they get factored in, it's difficult, it's subjective. But I think increasingly the more you can put that in, the more transparency you have around that, 
the better the outcomes will be. Mm. We've improved that a lot in Australia, but equally I think there's probably still some scepticism around the extent to which sometimes short-term politics plays into decisions around which projects get done. If I switch to road and just talk a little bit about that, Mm. you know, there's been a lot more investment in road transport in each of the major cities, Sydney and Melbourne in particular of late. There's no doubt that that's provided some relief. Uh, But again, if you look at the Productivity Commission's report, their five-year annual productivity review, one of the things that they will say is that that's also actually induced more traffic. It's induced more people onto the roads. And one of the things that they will highlight is that um, there's no pricing mechanism there. There's no proper signalling mechanism other than ultimately congestion, right? And what a lot of people don't realise is that they pay a lot of money through um, fuel excise, through registration fees and and the like um, that goes into roads, but it doesn't actually directly link to where they want to drive or where they are driving. And some of those revenues are actually going to dry up or reduce in in the years ahead as we get more fuel-efficient cars, uh, we use more electric cars. Mm. So there is going to become a bit of a crunch point in terms of where the resources are and trying to understand the, the projects that people genuinely prioritise. And again, I think it's easy to just keep building more, easier to keep building more roads and harder to look forward 20 years and say, well, our population is going to be this in 20 years. Mm. How how do we want them to be moving around then? How do we want people to be moving around our city then? So it does require us to, to take a, a broader look at the benefits. Do you have any brilliant ideas around how we can plan beyond four-year political cycles and get projects to span 15 years, 20 years? Look, it's obviously an issue that's front and centre with CEDA. You know, we our remit is to try to advance good economic policy in support of economic and social development in Australia. Yeah. We try to do that by putting facts out there, mm. by putting, by creating environments where there is a professional and constructive space for an exchange of views. Yeah. And that's what we try to do every day, sometimes with success, other times not. But I think we need greater transparency. Mm. I think we need more conversation rather than less. Mm. And I think we need more transparency from governments around what they're doing, what the outcomes are that they're looking for, and then a bit of accountability in going back and actually determining whether those outcomes have been achieved. I'm so pleased to hear you say that because this is what I've been saying for a while now. And we briefly touched on the innovation economy and this kind of refers back to productivity. And um, we're, we're, uh, AECOM have done a reasonable amount of work on innovation economies. Um, we, we launched a report last year on innovation uh, in the Australian context for Australian cities and just actually... Um, Tonight, we're releasing a port here for transforming Melbourne and Victoria with innovation and employment clusters. As part of that, we've looked at cities around the world, uh, Boston, you know, as prime examples of cities that have embraced, and Tel Aviv um, and Barcelona that have embraced uh, the innovation economy and invest a lot in research and development. Do, do you have an opinion on how Australia is faring um, in relation to the innovation economy? And do, do you sense a sense of urgency is needed to, to develop the innovation economy? Yeah, look, I think there are examples of where we're doing well, and we've mm-hmm. seen the emergence of hubs here in in Melbourne, yeah. in Sydney, some great fintech hubs, yeah. and we've seen some successes. Aussies doing well overseas, and and they get a fair bit of coverage and all the rest of it. I think Australia faces some challenges. Earlier on, I was sort of talking about information and communication technology, and yes, that facilitates connections in ways that we would never have envisaged years ago. But what I call the the sort of economics of geography 
and there's a whole area of study around this, it still matters. You know, geography still matters. It does. Distance from markets still matters. And notwithstanding the advances in information and communication technology, you still see hubs. Yeah. You still see people concentrating and congregating around Silicon Valley and all the various hubs and Tel Aviv and, and all the rest of it. So that connectivity and that connection, including face-to-face, mm. still really matters. And I think that's what Australia has to get its head around, mm. that as new value chains emerge, as you get, yes, you've got big players, but there's also more opportunities to insert yourself into a supply chain as a niche provider of something. And I think the challenge is, you know, how we find those connections into those supply chains, mm. how we build connections with smart people, with other hubs, mm. and honestly, how we attract really bright people to Australia, not necessarily through a permanent skilled migration program, mm. But because we are an interesting and exciting place, we are doing interesting and exciting things. We have livable cities mm. and smart people just want to come here and be a part of that for a while. Yeah. And they leave a, you know, a little bit of their smartness behind. Yeah. And then you know, Australians here have connections to those people and they've got doors that they can walk through when they're overseas. Mm. So I think you've just come up with an advertising campaign. Smart people come to Australia and leave some of your smartness behind. <laughs> That's good. Well, <laughs> I just think we, you know, we've... We struggle for scale in Australia. We do. We, we've got a, a particular economy that has large cities on, on the fringes, yeah. but, but big distances. Yeah. And we know, we know that ecosystems matter. We know that conglomerations of activity matter. That's what we're seeing. Yeah. And so, again, I think to a large part, you can enable them, but they need to be organically driven. Mm. And then the question is how you support them mm. uh, to thrive. Yeah. And there are certain things you can do. But I think, you know, and people will talk about incentives around financing, all the rest of it. I think the challenge is there is no one size fits all. I know that's a bit of a throwaway line, but mm. it does depend on the circumstances of a particular ecosystem. Yeah. They may have some things stitched up really well. Um, they may need access to finance and all the rest of it. Mm. And you need to think about how you address it. Again, the, another piece of work I did at the Productivity Commission, we, we looked at financial incentives, we looked at venture capital. Yeah. It's hard to structure those things well so that you get the right outcomes. Yeah. But I think, again, you know, some of the most likely solutions are going to come from being better connected to global markets for capital mm. rather than thinking that we somehow need to, to seed more of that here. I would think so. I would think that capital would come if there, the ideas were there. You know, so we provide, we provide the incubation for the ideas and set the environment Right for generation of idea of the good ideas, then the capital would flow. I would imagine in a yeah, free, look, free economy. And you know, we met some people when we were in the states, and they're looking at opportunities here in Australia. We just need to be open to that. I think hmm. education um, as part of uh, the innovation economy as well. Do you think we do well with education? Have we moved quickly enough to adapt to different types of education, different ways of packaging education up, micro courses and the like. Look, I think um, we're seeing a lot of change there. It was interesting. We uh, CETA hosted the Copeland Lecture the other evening, which yeah. is a, a lecture that we have where we draw an international speaker to come and reflect on things in an Australian context. And the speaker we had was um, uh, J.S. Jux, who's the CEO of Rio Tinto. Yeah. And actually, he was asked this question. And his response was that, I think we need to stop looking solely to our educational institutions mm to address these challenges. Mm. Uh, yes, you need important skill development. Yes, you need the right sort of skill foundations. But I think what he was arguing was that 
a lot of the other skills that are relevant in the modern economy and the you know the future economy mm. are going to require business to play a role in helping to develop and enable those within people yeah. in a business environment. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been talking about the private sector and uh, I guess business becoming more part of the educational sector for a long time now. And um, I think we've still got a long, a long way to go there. And I think you're right. I think there is responsibility on the private sector to, to take a role in, yeah. in education and, and skill development in, in our cities. Now, that, that uh, lecture as well, that Copeland lecture is available for download, isn't it, on the CEDA website? That's right, cedar.com.au. Was it a good lecture? It was a fantastic evening. Yeah. Um, JS, as he likes to be called, I mean, he's incredibly smart and insightful, mm. but also very entertaining. And he covered, uh, the breadth of issues he covered was just incredible. Yeah. You know, so he talked about the challenges for large companies these days, yeah. um, social license, which we're hearing a lot more about. Yes. You know, he touched on education and skills, he touched on technology, uh, and actually he touched a lot on diversity and made some really interesting observations there around how, yes, diversity is important, but increasingly where his focus is, and this is the case in a lot of larger companies now, is on the issue of inclusion. Yeah. And if you have genuine inclusion, mm. then it really in some ways the challenges around diversity fall away because you are enabling different voices to be heard yeah. and empowered in your organisation. And, you know, it's funny when we start off talking about population and immigration and the, the benefits and challenges. I mean, that whole piece around inclusion, you, you could probably have a conversation around that in At the context of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So did he give any tips or tricks for, for inclusion in corporations? Look, because uh, um, there's a different way of thinking and, um, yeah. and, you know, like we've been very hierarchical, typically in big corporations, it's very hierarchical. Um, and I guess inclusion is a different way of, um, of, you know, forming yourself and, um, yeah, look, it's, it's where, the thinking is moving and and I suspect well I think it's it's in response to the fact that people are frustrated about the lack of progress in some measures of diversity particularly yeah. in respect of gender diversity it's not it's not easy but it's about enabling people in your organization yeah and if, if I go on a, a, take a slightly different tack for you as as co-chair of reconciliation australia one of the things we have a is a toolkit called a reconciliation action plan which is a, a plan that enables organisations to think about how they engage in reconciliation. Yeah. One of the things that I've observed um, in that role, but also as a director of companies, is that organisations who do well with their reconciliation action plans and make really good progress, sometimes they make more progress in terms of Indigenous employment and hitting those targets than they do with gender diversity. Yeah. But what happens is that once they've embedded that, then they tend to then actually step forward on their gender diversity. Yeah. And it's because I think that they're putting issues of difference front and centre yeah. and trying to unpack them and understand them. And so in the case of reconciliation, it's looking at it through the lens of culture, mm. which people don't start the conversation believing that they know the answer. I think in, gen in the gender space, quite often people, we all presume that we understand everyone else and that men understand women and women understand men notwithstanding a few books with various titles. Yes. But but I think there is a sometimes a, a more realistic effort to understand differences in the Indigenous space, and once you do that, you create a more inclusive culture, which then delivers benefits elsewhere. Are there any standout examples of, um, of corporations that have really taken you know, reconciliation very seriously and, uh, and it has transformed the way they do business and it's been good for business? Yeah, there's, there, there are quite a few examples and I don't want to um, pick out certain organisations, but we have the Reconciliation Action Plan program. There are different categories of these, what we call wraps, yeah. and there is a group of companies that what we call the Elevate Status, yeah. and they're some of our largest organisations mm. and they've 
you know, they've really embedded reconciliation in their organisation. They're creating tremendous opportunities through employment, through supply chain. And I mean, I could single some out, but it would be unfair yeah, to the others. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the resources sector. So you know a bit about that? I know a bit about some parts <laughs> of the resources right. sector. Um, so Australia, you know, we did so well out of the resources sector for so many years. Do you feel that, I guess then we had the global financial crisis, you know, the demand for resources declined, uh, but we seem to have a diverse enough economy to come out of that unscathed. Do you, do you see that we, we are diverse enough and where's the resources sector um, heading in Australia? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's no doubt when you go back and have a look at our economic performance that having that uh, boom in the resources sector on the back of the global financial crisis where we still had strong demand for commodities mm. was, you know, a, save, a saviour really in terms of our own economic performance. It wasn't without its challenges. Mm. You know, at the peak of that boom uh, with so many jobs being sort of pulled west, that did create challenges, you know, in other parts of the economy. Those wages were, were pushed up particularly for particular skills. Yes. And so, you know, it does have its own challenges. We saw if you were trying to build projects at that time, the cost of those projects mm. escalated yeah. as a result of yeah. the demand for people and, and other resources. Uh, so it's not without its challenges, but definitely delivered a fantastic contribution to the economy and helped us, at least at an, in an aggregate level, mm. to sort of sail through the GFC in a way that other countries weren't able to. Yeah. Uh, so that diversification does matter. Yeah. I think the sense is that that's probably a fairly unique set of circumstances that we saw. I don't mm. think people in the resources sectors are expecting that we'll get a boom like that. So that was a mega boom. Yeah, it was it was, you know, really uh quite significant. And I don't think people are expecting that you'll see that again. Uh, anytime soon. But our, our offices in Western Australia are actually, um, you know, reporting back to us that there is a bit of a, an uptick in activity um, yeah, in the, the resources sector. Look, They're this, a the, lot more positive about it than they yeah, were two the, years ago. There's no doubt that that's the case. Mm. Um, and if you're over in WA, you get that message pretty clearly. Yeah. Um, things have stopped falling, yeah. which is nice. And in some sectors, there is, I mean, there's definitely demand. Commodity prices have recovered. Mm. You know, we, we produce fantastic resources mm. um, that the rest of the world demands. You know, Woodside obviously a company that I'm involved with. You know, we are a really important supplier of natural gas uh, to Japan, to Korea. They're markets that we've had long-term relationships with mm. and there will be demand for that product in the future. Mm. And we've just had a number of projects come online. Uh, mm. And so the exports from that mm. uh, will be an important contributor to economic growth yeah. in the years ahead, many of them based on long-term contracts. So, you know, Touchwood all fairly well locked in. Yeah. And so that is an important part of our economy. I think when I travel around, go to Darwin, go to Hobart, go to Adelaide, you know, people are um, very quick to remind that there are other really important sectors as well. Education, incredibly important. Yes. And tourism. And in, in fact, they're, they're linked. So when you're down in Tasmania, they talk about the importance of education to their tourism sector. Yeah. Because people, foreign students who, who come, their families come to visit and they stay. Yeah. Uh, and they stay in places that many of the tourists don't go to. Yeah. And so it's been a, you know, a very important contribution to the Tasmanian economy. Mm. And certainly up in, in Darwin and the Northern Territory, they're looking at how they can reinvigorate their brand yeah. and their tourism activity. So a key element of that is thinking about what is the infrastructure, what is the planning mm. uh, that makes this a place mm. that people want to visit because yeah. it's, it's an enjoyable place to be. Oh, it is. And I mean, Darwin, Darwin is as well. I mean, it's got amazing recreation and uh, it's right next door to Indonesia. Mm. Um, and there's a huge 
population catchment there, I would think, that are wanting a, uh, an education in Australia or an opportunity to be educated in Australia. So I'd say that that's a big opportunity. We talked about regional Australia before, and that would be a huge opportunity for them as a, as a sector. Education and, and tourism. I was in New Zealand recently um, speaking at their national tourism conference, and I learned that tourism is their biggest sector now. Um, it's bigger than their agribusiness agri uh, sector in, in New Zealand, which is huge, and it's equally very important here in Australia as well. Well, in fact, I was contributing to that sector over the summer holidays, yes. and uh, I can. I Did can you, were you in a camper van or a caravan? I was in one of those uh, yeah. camper vans. Yeah, a lot of people are doing that now. Hooning around New Zealand. Yeah, good holiday. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, highly recommend it. With family. Uh, yes, myself, my husband, and the three kids in tow. Wow. Okay, so we always close this conversation by giving you a magic wand, essentially, and allowing you to apply, apply that magic wand uh, to your home city, which is Melbourne, which is an incredible city, one of the mo world's most livable cities. I'm giving you this magic wand right now. What would you do to Melbourne? Yeah, look, I thought long and hard about this. I would love to see more kids riding to school. Yeah. I think yeah, if we can... Uh, think a little bit more about creating the right infrastructure, the right roads, the right bike paths yeah. and other facilities so that kids can ride their bikes to school. I think you would see tremendous benefits from that, yeah. both in terms of congestion and people on the roads, yeah. but also getting kids active yeah. and active as part of their daily lives. And around my kids' primary school, there's a fantastic program that's being run called Dr. Cranky's. Right. Where Who's Dr. Cranky? Dr. Cranky is a volunteer program right. that basically recycles bikes. Yeah. Uh, so families that don't need bikes anymore bring them in. The bikes get fixed up. And at, then at the school? or At the school. Yeah. And then kids and families who don't normally have access to bikes can get a bike. Yeah. Uh, and they get a bike for whatever they feel they can pay. Yeah. So if a gold coin is what you can pay, yeah. then a gold coin is what you pay and you get a bike that's been fixed up and maintained, a mm -hmm. helmet and a lock. And I've seen those kids then start riding to school and having the independence that they didn't have before. Mm. And so I just think it's a fantastic program. But it does require as well more of a commitment uh, mm. to kids being safe on roads yeah. and to, to that sort of infrastructure. Yeah. I think if we saw more kids on roads, drivers would behave a bit differently as well, which would yeah, be nice. I think they would. But I mean, in terms of the infrastructure, like I think, of, you know, it's funny, this is quite serendipitous. I was only talking to my wife last night about the kids riding to school. <laughs> Because I believe they should. So the 10-year-old and the 6-year-old, I think they're at the age now where they really should be riding to school. And I, I was mapping it out in my mind and the infrastructure, you know, the, the issues around safety and riding on cross-major roads. And it really is because schools are typically around town centres uh, or in urban areas. It's not insurmountable, the infrastructure that would be required to make it safer for crossing those major roads and, uh, and then traversing along uh, those major roads. Yeah, I think, I think if more kids do it then you see behavioural changes as well. People look out for them more. My kids ride to school. My 10-year-old um, will ride to school on her own. Yeah. I mean, she's grown as a result of that, right? Yeah. She's, you can see she's, she's proud of the fact that she does that. Yeah. And, you know, depending on we had some... Uh, the bike path was closed off while they were doing the Tuller works. Yeah. And she would just ride along the footpath. And I won't say that the first couple of times she went on her own, I didn't sit by the phone yep. waiting for her text to yep. say that she got there safely. Yeah. But 
she's bigger and more responsible for having done it. Yeah. And it's great because, you know, she can get herself to and from. It just makes life easier for us. And she's active every day. Yeah. So that's, that's fantastic. incredibly important because I guess, well, that's part of the education process as well then, that active transport is part of the way you do things. And that is learned behaviour that then comes on to their adult life, um, which is really what we need in Australia yeah, and absolutely. all cities around the world. You know, active transport's incredibly important and... Uh, and it really should be our future, a prioritised future in, uh, in our cities. Yep, agree entirely. Yeah, that's a great place to end. Thank you. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you very much, Melinda, for it's coming been, in today. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.